The oil of the Middle East has long been Britain's and indeed Europe's main source of supply. It has been shipped from the great wells of the Arab states by way of the Persian Gulf and the Suez Canal. But Nasser has blocked that route and it's something he could have done at any moment. The pipeline from Iraq runs through Syria and the Syrians by sabotaging the pumping stations have cut that route. Good morning, Rondelays and Rusticators. I hope it's just your laugh that is infectious. It's me again, Christian Huey. Welcome back to All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast about the music of Ron and Russell Mail, a.k.a. Sparks. This is episode nine, can you believe it, uh, where I will be wrapping up our two-part tour of the 1974 opus, Kimono My House. But first, Susie Safety, sound the alarm! There's some delicious oral newness coming from the Sparks camp this month, including the announcement of a European tour starting in October, followed by a worldwide tour in 2021. Also, the full track list has been made public for Ron and Russell's forthcoming album, A Steady Drip Drip Drip, which you can go ahead and Google right now as you're listening to this. Most delectably, Sparks has released a brand new song from the aforementioned new album. It's titled Self-Effacing, and it goes a little something like this. That new album, A Steady Drip Drip Drip, will drop on May 15, and you can pre-order your copy from a number of sources, including the brothers themselves, at allsparks.com. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'm adding a new segment to this intro part of the show uh, that I call Friends of the Pod. Or maybe maybe I'll call it popularity or something, obviously, Sparksy. I don't know yet, but you know, we fly by the seat of our pants here. Regardless, um, this is the time where I take a moment to acknowledge people that I've had the pleasure of meeting in the world of Sparks fandom. Today, I would like to shout out to Andy Moore and Stevie Nister. Andy Moore reached out to me via email all the way from Tucson, Arizona, by way of San Francisco, to tell me he enjoyed this podcast. Uh, and as both a Sparks fan and a podcaster himself, Andy turned me on to his podcast called Andy's Treasure Trove. As fate should have it, Andy has devoted one episode entirely to Sparks. Gee, one whole episode? Just yanking your chain there, Andy. 
it is an excellent episode featuring interviews with some very interesting folks, including Tosh Berman, uh, author of a book you may have heard of uh, that chronicles uh, Sparks' 21 by 21 concert series in London back in 2008. Uh, also, Andy, in the spirit of Talking Heads' Stop Making Sense uh, movie, uh, conducts a very hilarious and thoroughly fake interview with Ron and Russell. Please, definitely... Now or soon, go check out Andy's Treasure Trove podcast, available at andystreasuretrove.com or wherever podcasts are sold. Oh, I, I also heartily recommend following the links offered on his podcast website to Andy's impressive repertoire of short films and visual art. Thank you so much for reaching out, Andy. Next, Mr. Stevie Nister. If that name doesn't ring familiar to you, you're not doing a good enough job reading the liner notes because Stevie has been playing drums for Ron and Russell for over a decade now. You can hear his amazing work on the skins on the seduction of Ingmar Bergman and Hippopotamus. Uh, He's also worked with an incredible roster of other brilliant artists over the years, such as Daniel Lanois, Danger Mouse, uh, Portugal the Man... Did I pronounce the land wall right? Sadly, uh, Stevie lives with chronic Lyme disease and has had to endure crippling arthritis and multiple joint replacements. He has started a GoFundMe to help him raise the necessary funds to cover future invasive procedures, which are tragically an inevitability with his set of symptoms. Sparks fans, I know we're all living on a budget, but take a quick moment to appreciate the joy Stevie has brought to us by being a part of Sparks' music and see it in your heart to send a few dollars Stevie's way. You can find his GoFundMe page through a quick Google search, but I'll be sure to drop a link in the description for this episode. Andy, Stevie, I like you, and you like me a lot. Maybe that's why we're all friends. Having said all that, let's get into the episode at hand, as I beseech you all to dance goddammit. Come on to my house, my house I'm gonna give you candy Come on to my house, my house I'm gonna give you apple, plum And I forgot I do Inflation was up to 8.4%. Prime Minister Edward Heath put a strict cap on pay raises in public sector positions, which just made things worse. The IRA blew up parts of Manchester and Victoria stations in London, and there was an oil crisis perpetuated by an embargo from OPEC targeted at several nations, including the UK. Anxious, unsettling times for Britons in 1973 and 1974. Sparks, a newly British band, were no exception. The oil embargo meant petroleum products were in tight supply, and less petroleum meant less vinyl to press a record. Record labels at that time were even dropping newly signed acts completely rather than sacrifice their precious dwindling supplies of vinyl. Very lucky for Ron and Russell Mail that their producer, Muff Winwood, was bound and determined to get Sparks' new LP pressed and shipped Come hell or high water. He had that much faith in the band. Bizarre to consider, kind of, through the eyes of an inhabitant of the year 2020, that something so arbitrary as the cost and availability of an ethylene plastic could determine the fate of a musical artist. Yet it could have stopped sparks right in their tracks, or at least delayed them by a year or so. But then, of course, pop music consumers are just as fickle today as they were in 1974, and the right time can make all the difference. Uh, Maybe if they had debuted in 1975 or 76, the train would have already left the station. Surviving the vinyl shortage in 1974 was one of many examples of how things that needed to go right for Sparks to succeed did. As fate and Muff Winwood would have it, Kimono My House, Sparks' third proper album, fourth if you count 1969, self-produced and distributed Half Nelson, landed in British and European record stores in May 1974, and Sparks took off like a rocket. For a moment, let's set aside the music of Kimono. Yes, I do envy the lucky record buyer in 1974 who first 
Got to unlock the aural pleasures etched into those vanishingly thin spiraling grooves in that precious vinyl. But what did the album look like? What would be the visual synecdoche that newly minted Sparks fans would from then on associate with Kimono My House? The new release from an all-male art rock band. How about two young Japanese women dressed as traditional geishas standing fully frontally for the camera? It's not exactly truth in advertising if what you saw was what you expected to get from the music inside the sleeve. It wasn't representational at all. A handful of less savvy consumers of pop culture in the 70s may have been bound to think, at least for a moment, that this weird-looking record uh, was full of traditional-sounding Japanese female vocals, kotos, taikos, uh, or maybe something more modern but still channeling the exotic spirit of the Far East, something like a Yoko Ono album. I'll preemptively answer the chicken-egg question, and the fact is that the title came first and inspired the cover art, not the other way around. The line, Kimono My House Monomur, was a key phrase from Ron Mail's wordplay-heavy Asta Manana Monsieur, in which Kimono My House was a mondegreen of Rosemary Clooney's Come Anna My House. Oddly, the Japanese geishas as photo subjects was an idea that Ron Mail um, had already had kicking around in his head for at least uh, a year or so. He had originally envisioned a World War II vintage-style-looking photo with two geishas holding up a cover of their previous album, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, while holding their noses in disgust. What may have influenced Ron's visual thinking for the album's cover image were the very famous Roxy music covers up to that time. In keeping with Roxy's posture of ironic glamour, that band decided to feature sexy, voluptuous pinup models on their LP covers. Now, Roxy Music, of course, were label mates on Island Records with Sparks, and the decidedly unglamorous posturing of the Japanese ladies of Komodo My House was likely a gentle dig at Roxy. The same photographer responsible for those Roxy photos, by the way, Carl Stecker, or Stoker, forgive me if I've got that wrong, uh, was called upon to photograph the ladies for Kimono My House. Uh, the models, of course, were not real geishas. Uh, they were Japanese-British members of a musical theater entourage called the Japanese Red Buddha Theater, who were based in London. Michi Hirota and Koniko Okamura were suggested for the photo shoot by their director, and neither knew how to properly wear their makeup or their wardrobe. Hirota, who, by the way, would later deliver those startling opening Japanese language vocals in David Bowie's It's No Game Part 1 for his 1980 masterpiece Scary Monsters album. <clears throat> later revealed to writer Madeline Boccaro that she thought the girls ended up looking ugly in the shot that was ultimately selected for the album cover. There were several images of Hirota and Okamura that were considered for that cover, including one with Hirota crossing her eyes and delivering the V-fingered fuck you gesture to the camera. The picture that actually got chosen looked like this. Two Japanese ladies standing side by side are cropped at the waist by the frame. On the left, Okamura holds either side of her chalky white face because of the makeup. Uh, looking slightly down, she wears a surprised expression with her mouth agape. Next to her, Hirota assumes an exaggeratedly coquettish pose, fanning herself with one hand and the other hand resting on her cocked hip. She gives a mocking side eye to the camera and a smirk that says, I don't know what you're selling either. How about that? A flat avocado green, appropriate for the mid-70s, wall uh, serves as the background. Neither the band's name nor the title of the album adorns the front of the sleeve. The reverse side of the LP spells out the band's name and album title along with four basically traditional photos of the band members. 
three small shots of the British musicians in black and white playing their instruments, and a much, much larger color still of Ron and Russell leaning against a spotlit wall and looking thoughtfully deadpan into the lens. Russell, with his Louis XIV curls, wears a gray suit jacket with butterfly lapels and no tie, while Ron stands in shirt sleeves and a patterned tie, his slacks riding way too high over his hips. Like the Geisha cover, there were many contenders for which photos would make the final cut to portray the band, uh, including one shot that included all five musicians. Presaging the realization that Sparks was strictly a duo, a brother's act, that full band shot was ditched outright. Adding to the insult, the photo of Adrian has his back to the camera, and a less flattering photo of Martin Gordon was selected than the one that he himself chose. This, by the way, was one of many of Gordon's gripes about his tenure in the band that was probably well-earned. The visual impact of Kimono My House was, for some fans, as memorable as the music within. And the music press had plenty to say about that aspect of the record. Kimono My House entered the charts on June 1, 1974, hit number four within weeks, and stayed on the UK charts through to the very end of the year. Near-universally positive reviews buoyed album sales. Sounds magazine declared it had, quote, the musical extravagance of Wizard, the sophisticated feel of Roxy, and the menacing power of the Third Reich. Ah. A young Morrissey, then known as Stephen, wrote in a published letter to NME, Today I bought the album of the year. Stephen said that uh, Kurt Cobain, who was only seven at the time of the album's release, would later claim Kimono as one of his all-time favorite records. Island Records' first press release anticipated the acclaim. Without drawing overworked comparison, it read, We believe that Sparks, with their music and unique visual identity, will capture the imagination and affection of roughly the same audience sector which has made Roxy Music such an overwhelming success. last episode of this podcast, we uh, examined the songs on the first side of Kimono My House, as well as two B-sides that didn't quite make it onto the final record. Uh, I'm now going to take some time to get into the flip side of Kimono, starting with the song that contains the phrase that gave the album its title. Side two begins with Hasta Mañana Monsieur, which features some of Ron Mayle's most fun and rewarding wordplay, as well as some of the catchiest melodies on the album. The song fades in gently with a lilting melody on electric piano. A synthesized woodwind supports it from the bottom end. The first few bars are immediately reminiscent of Slow Boat from Spark Slash Half Nelson, but then a blast from Adrian Fisher's guitar and the rhythm section show again that Bombast is the name of the game here. Uh, and then, in a different key and rhythm, Ron's ringing piano chords escort the band up the scale, ratcheting the tension up, up, and then suddenly everything drops into a bubbling, sinister groove in B minor. I tried to tell you in the night, starts Russell, nearly breathless right out the gate, that a girl like you, I could do without guided tours. And with that double entendre, Ron's already telegraphed to us what the song is about. A guy having a tryst with a foreign girl with whom he can't communicate verbally. But man, you really do need to hear the lyrics in their entirety to appreciate all the jokes. So bear with me here as I dare to recite the rest of the song. You tried to tell me in the day that your leading exports were textiles and iron ore. And then, of course, we have the chorus, which features a sinewy, up-windy guitar line after every monsieur. 
Hasta mañana, monsieur, were the only words that I knew for sure. Hasta mañana, monsieur, were the three little words that I knew you'd adore. Leaving my syntax back at school, I was thrown for a loss over gender and simple rules. You mentioned can't and I was shocked. So shocked. You know where I come from. None of the girls have such foul tongues. Okay, so that last line is probably the most often shared joke in a Sparks song by fans, by the way. Pairing can't with the assumed cunt. It doubles as a way to show the narrator's general ignorance. Uh, the chorus again, hasta mañana, monsieur, were the only words that I knew for sure. Hasta mañana, monsieur. C'est la vie, c'est l'amour, c'est no more, no no more. It's all the same, whether here or there or anywhere. There's them who have, and there are others who have not. Kimono, my house, mon amour. I am sure that this motion don't need no accompanying words. It's an odd little courtroom joke there. At least that's what I got from it. Guess I was wrong because you fled, leaving me with my Michelin guide and half-empty foreign bed. Hasta mañana, monsieur, were the only words that I knew for sure. And then it uh, it uh, repeats. Musically, hasta mañana is another perfect archetype of the kimono sound. Loud, soft dynamics, surprising aural outbursts, bombastic guitar, insistent, repetitive piano lines, and stop-on-a-dime key and rhythm changes. Incidentally, it was Muff Winwood's great idea to do that faux ending uh, with the coda that comes back from the dead silence. Let's take a listen to Asta Manana Monsieur.
Song two of side two is Talent is an Asset, possibly, in my opinion, the catchiest song on the album and the most straightforward in its structure. It's been said that Kimono My House is glam rock with a bubblegum sensibility, or maybe it's the other way around. Anyway, Talent is an Asset and Ron's playful and simple keyboard riff in particular is such an immediate pleasure for the ears. It's um, understandable maybe to feel like the album sags a little bit after this song plays. The song opens with a simple swinging beat from Dinky Diamond, with hand claps in a steady 4-8 to provide syncopation. Then Ron drops his irresistible riff, Bing, 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 bing. Hold for a couple bars. Then Fisher and Gordon's guitar and bass pop in, respectively, to put muscle on the song's bones and firmly placing the tune in D major. When the chorus comes, starring Russell at his most castrato-like, well, almost most castrato-like, we'll be revisiting this at the end of the album. The driving beat pauses dramatically before resuming for the second verse, same as the first. Near the song's climax, Russell sings at least two different tracks of counter-melody to my ears over the main melody, giving the song even more layers of syncopation. It's all that syncopated fun that makes Talent is an Asset one of the more danceable numbers on the album. Lyrically, the song takes the point of view of the doting but fussy parents of a very young Albert Einstein. The song seems to take the position that maybe nature needs nurture to thrive. Maybe Einstein wouldn't have been Einstein without the equivalent of Lake Victorian-era helicopter parents propping him up along the way. Ron is again having a ball with the lyrics here with lines like, Talent is relative, that's hypothetical. We are his relatives. That's parenthetical. Oddly, Talent is an Asset was only released in the U.S. as a single in 1974, and no other territory would get it, uh, which was released as a 7-inch. The B-side was lost and found. Uh, I have not seen any sales numbers for the single, but it probably didn't move many copies in the States as Spark still hadn't gotten any real traction there by that point. Let's take a listen to Talent is an Asset.
Complaints is the title of the next song on Kimono My House. The song begins with a steady, pounding beat sounding like a military march. A couple of bars in, the song literally switches up everything and turns into a more typical, for Sparks anyway, uh, rock song. Complaint is another one of those Frankenstein monster spark songs that combines several seemingly unrelated musical sections, but where on earlier Sparks records, the seams would still be showing. This kimono band, and Dinky in particular, make all of the changes seamless. Lyrically, we have a narrator who's thoroughly put out by life and is universally critical of every aspect of it, and then he knocks up his girlfriend and really has something to complain about. Now she says she is expecting that's my fault for not protecting her from all the risks of passion. She's complaining. She's old-fashioned. Just give it back. No questions asked. Complaint may not be the highlight of a nearly perfect album, but that's only because it has such formidable company. Uh, Intriguingly, Adrian Fisher is given a rare solo to close out the number, and it is a joy to hear him cut loose and jam in a bluesier style that was more comfortable to him. Here's Complaint. The inspiration for the next song, In My Family, was reportedly the song Family Tree by the French folk singer Jake Thackeray. It's likely the male brothers caught a televised performance of his on British TV. Uh, In that song of Thackeray's, the narrator is driven to suicide by his inability to deal with his unbearable family. That seems to be the case in this song, too, as Russell sings, That's how it's gonna be, before and after me, manufacturing many, many me's, gonna hang myself from my family tree. 
Russell's vocals sound a lot like the vaguely chipmunk-like delivery that he favored on the unreleased 1969 Half Nelson album, so-called demo album, uh, making In My Family sound a little like a throwback. Uh, Musically, uh, I would say In My Family is the weakest of the 10 songs on Kimono, but the band are nonetheless at the peak of their powers. The quality of musicianship boosts this song up a notch or three. It, it could have been a dud in less accomplished hands or uh, if it were recorded in a less inspired spirit. Here's In My Family. <laughs> Frequently cited as Sparks fans' favorite album closer, Equator indulges completely in the kind of slinky French cabaret sounds that Sparks experimented with on a woofer and tweeter's clothing. The narrator is singing to a missing partner who had agreed to meet him in a not very specific spot, the Equator, Nash. And of course, there's the joke. By the way, I say singing, but... If Russell could ever be accused of caterwauling, 
I, I think it's in this song, and, and I mean that in the most loving way. Kimono My House's closing track is, as Joseph Fleury put it, Charlie Parker meets Mickey Mouse, and neither comes out the loser. Of course, um, that saxophone that you're hearing in the song in a kind of call and response with Russell is not a sax at all, but a Mellotron. Originally built in 1963 in Birmingham, England, the Mellotron was an early synthesizer that used samples, not true synthesis, to produce its sounds. The instrument worked by recording an audio sample onto electromagnetic tape. The player plays the keyboard as she would normally, and each key that was pressed would play the taped audio sample in the corresponding musical note. So, yes, that's Ron using a keyboard to play that Charlie Parker-style free jazz all throughout the track. Equator is also an impressive showcase for Russell's falsetto, which seems to climb ever higher and higher to almost glass-shattering notes. As Russell continues his doomed and desperate pining for his lost love, the rest of the band seem to sense last call in the cabaret, and they call it quits for the night. That leaves Russell's piercing warble alone to duel with the faux sax, although a female chorus seems to be phoning in a stream of uh, equator, equator, uh, ad infinitum, either to buffet Russell or to counter him. Ultimately, the curtain closes on Russell, the spotlight is switched off, and the house lights go out on Kimono My House. Here's that last song on Kimono My House, Equator. This is the day in the time of the place. 
previous episode, I talked about Sparks' monumental performance of This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us on Top of the Pops. In the wake of that airing in May of 1974, and as the album and single hit the shelves and subsequently flew off of them, there came a torrent of magazine interviews and TV performances, as well as promotional appearances for Island Records. Meanwhile, manager John Hewlett called in Joseph Fleury all the way from New York to work as his assistant and start the first official Sparks fan club. Hewlett even phoned up Sparks' longtime associate, Larry DuPont, from back in L.A., and asked if he would like to manage his old friends in America. Unfortunately, but maybe fortunately for him, DuPont had become comfortable in his post-Sparks life as a photographer, and he politely declined. For their part, Ron and Russell thrived on the media attention, and they loved to give absurdist answers to the usual music journalist's questions. Russell told Record Mirror that the reason for his high singing voice was that he hadn't yet hit puberty, uh, Ron mused to Melody Maker that the secret to success for bands in England was having rotten teeth. In this fashion, Ron and Russell would engage in their now legendary trolling of the music press by spreading nonsense like they were the sons of Doris Day and family friends of the Kennedys. Notably, they also lied about their age and claimed they were both three to five years younger than they really were. Uh, the era of trust no one over 30 still, I guess, had currency then, and Ron was already 29. A uh, little side note here, by the way, the Wikipedia entries for Ron and Russell didn't even get the actual birth dates right until just a few years ago. The other three musicians handled this newfound fame in very different ways. Dinky Diamond seems to have been generally a good sport about the media attention and the throngs of new fans, although Adrian Fisher and Martin Gordon exhibited a lot of disdain, but for very different reasons. Although Adrian thoroughly enjoyed some of the trappings of rock music fame, literally the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, he didn't care for interviews, and he was openly contemptuous of doing promotional events for the label. For Martin Gordon, it was personal. He thought he had been hired onto the band as a songwriter, not just a bass player. After having his ideas shot down again and again by Ron and Russell, he grew increasingly oppositional in his disposition toward them. When he was suddenly sacked by the brothers, John Hewlett thought the move was a mistake, and he started to grow concerned that Ron and Russell might soon sabotage their own budding success. With a tour scheduled to begin that summer, Sparks needed to work out their touring band. They replaced Martin Gordon with the affable Ian Hampton from Edinburgh and added a second guitarist named Trevor White to assist Adrian Fisher on stage with working out the overlapping uh, guitar parts that were done in studio uh, for the record. <clears throat> both had been members of the jammier-sounding band Juke, and both were loyal, personal friends of Hewlett. Hampton and White had both heard and liked Sparks from their first European tour in 1972, 
Uh, but they were understandably completely caught off guard when Hewlett asked them point blank to join the band and to prepare for a tour that kicked off in less than three weeks. It was a panic job, Hampton recalled. John told the brothers, Juke were winding down, and I was available. It was straight at the deep end, two weeks rehearsals, and then out on the road. Kimono My House is not the most straightforward of records to learn. It was a complete jolt to the system. After a few more TV appearances with the new expanded band, including a second TOTP, Sparks embarked on a full tour of the UK that lasted from June 20th to July 7th. Hmm, that's it? Yes, it must have been exasperating for both the fans and the label to hear of a so-called full tour that lasted a paltry 17 days and 16 performances, but the entire tour had been booked before This Town became a runaway single. Apologetically, Russell later referred to the mini-tour as a Sparks free trial offer tour and that everyone was still feeling their way and no one knew what their reaction would be. By the start of the 1974 UK tour, Sparks were the biggest band in England. In addition to appearing on the covers of more serious rock music journals, they were also given multi-page spreads in Teeny Bopper magazines, which seriously amused and surprised the band members, especially considering the unkid-friendly lyrical content of Ron's songs. Similarly, the kinds of crowds that flocked to those summer 74 Sparks shows were a bizarre mix of concert goers. In addition to the more seasoned and dedicated rock fans showing up, there were frequently hordes of young girls screaming toward the stage like it was Beatlemania Redux. Ira Robbins, who was in town to promote his new magazine, Trouser Press, caught a Sparks show in London. He had the following to say, Russell was wearing a loose-fitting linen suit and girls were throwing themselves on the stage and wrapping themselves around his ankles while he sang. It was enormous fun and one of those pivotal events where what you think you know is completely wrong and something else replaces it in an even better way. And in Russell's own words, what we were doing, despite being a bit musically challenging, though totally accessible too, was received as though it was the Bay City Rollers, as far as the crowd reaction goes. It was a bizarre phenomenon to be performing songs in concert with lyrics such as those in Talent is an Asset about a young Albert Einstein growing up, and in turn having fans throwing themselves on stage. They'd run on stage, try to grab you, although if they got a hold of you, they weren't quite sure what to do next. As for how the quote-unquote real fans felt about Sparks' appeal to the um, screamagers of the day, as they were called, Ron offered the following, uh, although he describes a posture towards Sparks that thankfully would be short-lived. People that could stick with us musically didn't because they saw all these girls and assumed we were a teeny bop band. Frequently seen mingling in the crowd were Miriam and Rogie Roginson, ever supportive of their two sons who had just become pop stars overnight. Miriam would sometimes introduce herself to other concert goers as Doris playing along with Ron and Russell's publicity prank. As they had done with the original American band, Ron and Russell generally sat apart from the other guys while on the tour bus, burying their noses in books, magazines, or, or chatting quietly between themselves. The other band members acted more their age, uh, and more like uh, rock stars, drinking, smoking, joking, picking up girls, and just generally kicking back. When the band would go out to eat, Ron and Russell would regularly be the only ones to refrain from any type of alcohol and were notoriously particular about the quality and the healthfulness of the food that they ate. While the other three enjoyed indulging in pranks on the bus, Ron and Russell were never the subjects completely off limits, nor were they ever involved in the shenanigans themselves. As Trevor White put it, 
Ron and Russell did get this reputation for being weird, and the only reason for that was because they weren't weird at all. It was this monk-like asceticism on the brothers' parts, as well as their guarded nature in conversation, that made the biggest impression on the new band members about how they related to the male brothers personally. Uh, Still, Ian Hampton remembers his time with them fondly, and he noted that they were both generally friendly chaps. And, by the way, Ron did a hilarious gorilla impression once or twice on the bus. The mini-tour wrapped, and it would go down in the books on balance as a smashing success. Other than a single disappointing night near the end, the band was in peak form, and the tickets sold like mad. One show, in fact, sold out within 90 minutes of the tickets being released for sale. The critics were jazzed, the fans were pumped, and Island Records was delighted to have made such an impressive return on their investment. Besides the fact that everyone and their granny was happy to pay to see a spark show in 1974, the band had wisely decided on a no-frills presentation— That means no paper mache boats, no prop mallets, just the standard lighting rig and a spotlight on Russell. Island Records correctly sensed a continued appetite for all things Sparks in England. They demanded that the band head back into the studio immediately to record a follow-up to Kimono My House. Even though there were no new songs ready to go... Recording began in earnest in August. I hate to be a Captain Bring Down two episodes in a row, but I think now is an appropriate time in the Sparks timeline to honor the too short but impactful life of Sparks guitarist Adrian Fisher. Adrian's technical skills and aggressive playing on his guitar wowed Ron and Russell in that first audition back in 1973, and they had plenty of respect for him as a musician. Although Fisher was the Bacchanalian opposite of the male brother's famous temperance and particularly enjoyed indulging in alcohol, it was the stylistic differences in music that led to his firing from the band in 1975 He loved the blues, and Ron and Russ had zero time for that. Sadly, drink would eventually come to consume Adrian's life, robbing the world of a prodigious musical talent. Fisher stayed in the music business initially, joining the funk rock band Boxer in 1977. Boxer didn't last long, however, and although biographical details are scant, it seems as though Fisher continued to scrape by as a journeyman guitarist up until moving to Thailand in the late 1980s. There he worked as a musician in a holiday resort town called Lamai Beach in Koh Samui. According to reports of friends and acquaintances, Adrian's drinking further intensified throughout his life and could occasionally be a belligerent drunk. He was also, however, often kind to strangers and generous with his time, especially if someone uh, needed a guitar teacher, um, which was his abiding passion. Adrian Fisher died of myocardial infarction at the impossibly young age of 48 on March 31, 2000. Ron and Russell posted a tribute to their former guitarist on their website upon learning of his death and sent their condolences to Fisher's family. Martin Gordon has a frank and revealing interview between Adrian and a Finnish fan named Petteri Aro up on his website, which I recommend checking out to get a better sense of the man. Better still... Hold tight, and I'll play for you the audio of Adrian's segment on a 1999 episode of the BBC show Expats, which explores Adrian's daily life in a Thai resort town. Rest in peace, brother. You made my world a tiny bit brighter through your existence on this planet. I want to thank you guys for listening to my podcast. 
please take a moment to like us on Facebook or send me an email at podcastsparks at gmail.com. Have a story about sparks you'd like to share or have a factoid I missed or even noticed a glaring error that I made on the show. Hey, let me know. I appreciate all feedback. Now, here's Expats starring the late, great Adrian Fisher. As Audrey settles into her new life in Thailand, she joins an estimated 6,000 British expat. Adrian Fisher is a guitarist and former rock star who lives on the island of Koh Samui. He gave up his rock and roll lifestyle to live a simple life when he split from top 80s pop group Sparks with the brothers Ron and Russell Mayle. When I first met the brothers, I mean, they weren't like they were now. I mean, Ron used to look like Frank Zappa, beard and long hair and stuff, and he just turned up one day looking like Hitler. And I think the image was supposed to be some 1920s playboy kind of image. After becoming disillusioned with the music industry, Adrian decided to look for something else. I was getting so depressed, I had to go somewhere. I just kind of literally sort of went to Thailand. I haven't been there before, and that's like... Three days turned into about three weeks or a month. I eventually made it here. And uh, I've not been here ever since, I guess. For six, seven years ago, six, yeah, six and a half years. I see something that surprises me every day, especially in uh, Samui, where tourism is actually fairly new. But they're, they're catching on real fast supermarkets, internet cafes, and it's all very strange. I mean, been here six years, you can imagine how strange it is for guys that I know have been here for 12, 15 years. I mean, I mean, there wasn't a road here, it's just a track, and there was like just a few bars, and that was it. I mean, every time I blink, there's a new bar here. I mean, if in doubt, they stick up a new bar and knock another one down. I hate the girly bars and this and that. Hello, welcome, come inside, handsome man. Sure, I hate all that. One thing I don't like seeing like a 65, 70-year-old man walking down the street with a 18-year-old girl and stuff. It was just kind of it's not right somehow. Rock and roll excess. Uh, I was lucky, been there, seen, done most of it. Survived it. And it wasn't so long ago I had a severe alcohol problem here. And it's easy done, it's cheap. You just don't realise you're doing it. You've got good friends saying, hey, you, you're losing the plot. You can play guitar when you're pissed, and you can play guitar when you're sober. But I know I'm not that much of a dummy. I know I play much better when I'm sober. Don't drink any heavy stuff, a couple of beers. I don't mind losing anything, but I don't want to lose my dignity. And walking like that home at night and falling in puppies and stuff, that's... I don't do that anymore. I'm too old to go running around in the dirt. You better come on in my kitchen. It's gonna be a rain outside. The woman I love is my best friend. So One of the main ties I have in Thailand pun intended, it's my girlfriend, the same age as me, I don't hang out with young girls and stuff, she's done so much for me, she's taken care of me, I hate to admit it, she supports me sometimes, it should be the other way around, it's very unusual to find a Thai lady with that attitude, who's that devoted, well patiently has, has faith in your ability. of character and guidance and knowledge, I couldn't survive here on my own. No way. Rags to riches. Riches to rags. But surviving. It's only rock and roll, but I'm getting the hang of it.